Heavenly Father, we come this morning into your presence knowing that we are utterly, utterly undeserving of of the least of your mercies. And therefore, we are so very thankful for your, your eternal and your exceeding great loving kindness to those of us who have put our faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for planning our salvation and for doing so before even the foundation of the world was laid, and for so moving our hearts by your divine grace and power so that they turned to the foot of the cross. And thank you, Lord, for the salvation of our souls. It is joy unspeakable to know that our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, and that we now meet and pray in your presence, because we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your eternal Son. And Father, it is a great, great joy to again be gathered in this place with our sisters in Christ. And we ask that our time here this morning would increase our love for you, our understanding of the magnificence of our Savior and what all he has done for us. I pray, Lord, that just something of the height and depth and breadth and length of his redemptive work on our behalf might grab hold of our hearts and souls today, that we would be lifted up out of ourselves and our daily circumstances and all that we are involved in in this life, and that for this hour we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we would focus on him and on him alone so that our hearts are filled with a warmth of affection toward him, and we ask that our inner praises to him as we study more and more about him would be those of true sincerity and love. And now may your Holy Spirit quicken your word so that our hearts are stirred and we are built up in this faith that you have delivered unto us. For we do pray in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, since about the year 2003, I think, I really have a hard time knowing back when it was, but I think it was about 2002 or 2003 that we actually began studying the chronological life of the Lord Jesus Christ, going through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, taking his life step by step. As you leave today, you're going to have our eighth and final volume on the life of Christ, and it's going to begin with the Lord's walk to the cross. Okay, so we're finally there. Can you believe it? (laughs) Since 2002 or 2003, we're finally at the cross. And as we progress during the weeks that are before us, we're going to be discussing, obviously, not only his walk to the cross, but his actual crucifixion and all that entailed. And we're going to see that his crucifixion was divided into two main parts. There were the first three hours on the cross when the sun was in the sky, and then there were the second three hours on the cross when the sun was darkened, right? So how many total hours did he spend on the cross? Total of six hours. He went through six men's trials, and then it took him six hours to finish God's work. But as we look at those first three hours, we're going to focus on the hate, hatred of the crowd that was before him. Then we're going to look at the faith of the penitent thief. We'll also talk about the love of the Savior, particularly as it is expressed toward his mother. 
while he's there hanging on the cross. And we're going to actually also discuss how many sayings, how many times did Jesus speak from the cross? Who knows? Seven, right? A total of seven sayings, and each one of them probably could be an entire lesson. They're very profound and have a lot of significance for you and I. So we're going to be talking about his seven sayings from the cross. And um, then when he dies, we're going to give up his spirit. We're going to discuss the strange phenomena that occurred. Remember what happened, first of all? At the moment he died, a thick veil in the temple rent from top to bottom because God did it. Top to bottom. The way into God's holy presence was now made available for all men through his son. And then what happened? There was an earthquake and dead bodies came out of the grave and people actually saw them walking around in Jerusalem. Pretty strange, right? And we're going to talk about some of the responses of those who witnessed Jesus on the cross and some of these strange things going on with the sky being darkened. And one of those responses I think of immediately was from the centurion and actually from the other Roman soldiers, not just from him. And they said what? Truly, this was the Son of God. And then, of course, we're going to have to talk about the burial of the Lord's body and all the wonderful things that went on on Sunday morning. How many trips were there taken by people back and forth to the tomb? Have you got any idea? I don't either right now, but there was a lot. And it's this, the, the uh, uh, sequence of the trips are very confusing. You really have to blend and harmonize all four Gospels together to understand the sequence of, of Mary Magdalene getting there first before the group of other women, and then she runs back while the women arrive and talk to the two angels, and then she tells the disciples, you know, his body is missing, and so who runs forward? John and Peter. John gets there first. You know, he's the first one to believe, looks into the tomb. What he sees in there causes him to believe. But in the meantime, Mary runs back, and that's when she has her little discussion with a man she thought was the gardener, turned out to be the the master, and on the way back, the women actually meet him, and they fall down at his feet. It's very confusing if you just read one gospel, but we're going to all piece it together with all four, and it's going to make a whole lot better sense for you. And then, of course, after that, we're going to have to talk about his post-resurrection appearances. Do you know how many times he appeared to believe his apostles and other believers? A total of 11 times, 11 times. At least 11 recorded times. He probably appeared before them more than that. But he had a lot more teaching to give to them. And um, he met with them 11 times. And then grand finale will be when he ascends up into heaven to take his rightful seat at God's right hand. So it's going to be a very climactic study this year. So please invite your friends that have not been part of this ministry or if they've dropped out, get them back, okay? It's going to be a real exciting year. I don't know how far we'll get, but we're not, not off to a very good start because we're only going to get through half of our lesson today. So if you're expecting me to have the ascension by May, that might not happen. <laughs> Probably won't happen. <laughs> but I'm not going to worry about that. You know, I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit lead us. And that's the, he's, the, he's the one, you know. I don't want to make a schedule and then we feel like we're in a box. You know, we have to do this, we have to do that. We're just going to let him lead, see how far we get each week and go from there. Now, when we first launched ourselves into this long look at the Lord's life, 
we had asked a very basic question. How many of you were with us when we started that study? Well, that's a good, oh wow, that's quite a few. A lot more than yesterday. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but we asked ourselves a very basic question, one that really needed to be asked since I knew when I started this that it was going to take us at least eight years. I didn't know it was going to take us something like 11, 12, 13, whatever we're in now. But, um, you know, if you're going to spend that much time in a study, you need to find out, is this going to be worth it? Is it? Why is the life of Jesus Christ worth studying? Is, we should say, is the life of Christ worth studying and spending the amount of time that we have devoted to it? Now, I can assure you how the, the world would answer that question, the world out there. They would say, there's no way it's worth that much time in your life. In my life, I've already spent 20 years now studying the life of Christ, counting the first eight years, and now this is the second time. And they would say, that's kind of, don't you have anything better to do? And I would say, no, I don't have any. Well, yes, I do have something I could do, but not better. That's absolutely the best thing I could ever do with my life. It's the best thing you could do with your life. But, you know, the world would say, nah, you need to be devoting yourself to other things and endeavors and philanthropic works and all whatever, whatever they would come up with. But, you know, as Christians, we don't go to the world for our answers. I hope you don't. Where do we go for our answers, lady? To the Bible. The Bible is our final authority for our faith and for our practice. And the divinely inspired scriptures tell us that Christ's life, the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, his life is the one life ever lived that makes eternal life possible. Therefore, is it worth studying? You want eternal life? You want to spend eternity in heaven? then his life is worth studying, definitely. And as we have taken the time to look in detail, in depth, at every recorded word, every recorded step, every recorded work, and every fulfilled messianic prophecy of his life, I trust that you have come to a deeper faith in his person. Have you? I have for sure. I can say I have not one grain of doubt about who Jesus Christ is. None whatsoever. The years studying his life have been well worth it. Because I know on my deathbed, I'm not going to have any doubt where I'm going to immediately go. And that's into the presence of the Lord. We have had proven to us, I just can't even imagine how many times we have had proven to us over and over again that he is indeed who he claimed to be, the promised Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the eternal Son of God who became man so that he could die in our place, suffering the full penalty of our sins for us. The study of every single jot and tittle of his life, his amazing life and his, his, uh, his death, his resurrection, increases our faith in him because we get to know him so much better. And when you get to know Jesus Christ better and better, you wind up loving him more and more and realizing you can trust him. You can completely, confidently trust him. Just rest in him knowing that he is going to keep his promises because he is almighty God. And then, in learning of the Son, who do we really learn of? 
the Father. Do you want? Do you think it's important to get to know God the Father? Absolutely. When we learn about the Son, we are really learning about the person and the nature and the character of God himself. Jesus said this. He said, remember when he was posed a question by Thomas when he was uh, speaking the farewell discourse in the comfort chapter of John 14? He said to Thomas, if ye had known me, ye would have known my Father also. And then just two verses later, he's answering a question raised by Philip. And he says to Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen my father. I am in the father and the father is in me. In studying the life of Jesus Christ, we are learning about the very creator God of the universe. Jesus came not only to redeem mankind, but to reveal the father to us. We are learning about the giver of life himself. And how important do you think it is to know God? Do you think it might be worth a few years of your life? It should be the endeavor of your entire life to get to know God. Um, Nothing you do, nothing you do is more important. And there are literally out there in the world, there are billions of people who think that they know God. But if they do not know Jesus Christ, I have news for them. They do not know God. You cannot know the Father apart from the Son. They think they know God, but the God that they know is a God of their own imaginations and a God of other men's imaginations. It's not the God of creation the God who revealed himself to us in Holy Scripture. And therefore, they are placing their faith in a false God. And what is their end? Their end is going to be utter destruction. Well, the second important part of studying Christ's life is also that it causes us to grow in Christ-likeness ourselves. The more we learn about the mind and the heart of Jesus Christ as we meditate upon and digest the wisdom of absolutely everything he ever did or ever said, the more we see his absolute holiness and righteousness and goodness and character and all of his wonderful attributes, and the more we sincerely gaze at him in the mirror of his word, what happens to us? We are changed into his image. Now, I don't know how that works. But it does. And that's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. That as we look at the word of God, the spirit of God takes the word of God and it transforms us into the image of the glory of his son. And what is that called? That's called the process of sanctification. Becoming more and more like Christ. More and more holy. To become sanctified is the will of God for us. If you ever wonder what the will of God is, you know, I've had women come to me, if I just knew the will of God, I would do it. Well, it's really simple. He doesn't make it very difficult. What did Jesus say to his men and to anyone who was listening? Come unto me. Come. That's an invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know what that first rest is there? Peace with God. He's inviting everyone to come to him. If you're heavy with the burden of your sin and you feel the burden of your sin, come to him. He'll give you peace with God. That's salvation. What is God's will? Your salvation. How do you get salvation? Come to Jesus Christ. Come to the Father through him. 
And then the second part of that is he says, take my yoke upon you, take my yoke upon you, and then what? Learn of me. Isn't that what we're doing? That he commanded that. So here, I got, the, I, I got news for you. What's the will of God? Come to him, be saved. Second part of that, be sanctified. Learn of him and you will become more like him. And that's very clear in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It says, how much more clear can this be? Listen, this is a direct quote from the Bible. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. That's pretty easy. Get saved and then the rest of your life, grow in holiness. Be sanctified. He finished that by saying, Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That's the second time that he mentioned rest. You know what that rest is? It's the peace of God. When you come to him for salvation, you receive the peace, peace with God. That's salvation. When you learn of him, you get peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. How many of us want that kind of peace? Peace of God, regardless of circumstances. I talked to one of our ladies yesterday who has just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That's not a good diagnosis. And she was head of the nursing program down at Sand Hills Community College, so she knows what that means. And yet she told me, she said, well, Catherine, and she was glowing. She said, it's a win-win situation for me. It is a win-win situation. Don't you want that kind of peace of God? Well, then learn of Christ and you'll receive it. All right, so, so we have arrived now at the point in our Life of Christ study that Jesus is about to be crucified as men fulfilled their wicked plan for the death of the one who so disturbed their consciences. You know, the religious rulers in particular hated him because he disrupted the, the, the peace that they had created, the false peace in their own conscience. You know, he comes along and he says, they, they think it's okay if you just don't commit adultery overtly. Now, they were actually doing it because they had these easy divorce rules so that they could marry someone else if their wife, you know, burnt the toast or whatever. But they, they thought, you know, with their little rules and regulations, they were getting out of actually committing adultery. But he says, if you even look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery. That disturbed their consciences. They didn't like him. They don't, you know, darkness doesn't like light, does it? And also he came along and he really disrupted their self-centered lifestyles. You know, if you're going to follow him, you need to deny yourself. You need to die to self. They didn't want that. They didn't like that. They were very egocentric. But uh, they were doing their thing, but really, God's redemptive program was unfolding in absolute, perfect accord with his plan. On his time schedule, everything was happening just as God had planned it when? Way back in eternity past. Six times we learned last year that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at this, this time, had declared Jesus to be innocent. Six times! I find no fault in this man at all. And Herod Antipas also declared him innocent. That's a total of seven times from the Roman rulers that Jesus was innocent. And yet, contrary to the leading of Pilate's own conscience, and contrary to the leading of his wife's conscience and her warning to him, and even in violation of Roman justice, 
what did he have done? Well, he had his innocent prisoner scourged. And a Roman scourging was horrific. We talked about that. And he allowed his soldiers to scorn and to ridicule Jesus by mocking him, by dressing him up in a royal garb of a thorny crown on his head and a scarlet cape or a red-purple cape. That was actually one of the Roman soldiers' capes that did not cover all of his nakedness. And they gave him, him an imitation reed scepter to hold in his hand, which later they used to strike him on the head and drive those spikes of the thorny crown even deeper into his scalp and brow. And neither did the Roman governor prevent his soldiers from buffeting Jesus in the face with their fists, just as the religious rulers had done. And what else did they do to him? Well, we learn in Isaiah that they actually grabbed chunks of his beard and yanked it out. Can you imagine the, the face is sensitive, how much that would hurt? How much does it hurt if they pull hair out of your head? Well, it would hurt even more out of your scalp, your face, wouldn't it? And they spit on him, spit in his face, just awful. More concerned for his own position with Caesar than he was in seeing that justice or even civility was upheld, this weak Roman politician, Pilate, finally capitulated. And he, he appeased the tumultuous, caw-crowing crowd. Remember we said that the Holy Spirit said they sounded like a bunch of crows cawing. That's the word the Holy Spirit used, and I thought that was so appropriate. You know, come on, they're out there just hollering, screaming for Jesus' uh, crucifixion. But he, he gave in to all that. We were told in Luke 23, 24, and Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. Isn't that a weak politician? Terrible. He turned his innocent prisoner over to the, his soldiers to be crucified. Now, the Jewish religious leaders, who, of course, represented the nation of Israel, sad thing that they did, but, you know, our leaders represent our country. Their leaders represented their country. They had made the declaration, we have no king but, but Caesar. And in doing so, they had pronounced publicly the culminating apostasy of the nation. They not only rejected their long-awaited Messiah, but they also publicly declared their allegiance to a heathen ruler, to Caesar. Now, we know, of course, that that declaration was said hypocritically. They did not really mean that, did they, in their hearts? But they said it nonetheless. They said it because it was expedient to say that for them so that they would get what they wanted, and they wanted Jesus crucified. But the consequence of them having said that is that for some 2,000 years now, God has given them what they themselves chose. You know, in fact, really, the consequences of their choice began almost immediately. Did you know that the house of Annas, remember Annas and Caiaphas were co-reigning high priests at that time. Well, the house of Annas was destroyed just a few years after the Lord's crucifixion. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was deposed from his office just one year after the Lord's crucifixion. In just 30 years, on the very spot where the people who had been stirred up and, and uh, motivated, instigated by the religious rulers, but on the very spot where the people had cried out, crucify him, and what else had they said? His blood be on us 
and on our children. Isn't that a dangerous thing to say? I mean, it's one thing to take the blood on yourselves, but on your children? Let's pray that our politicians never say that, okay, to God. Mm. But anyway, they, they said that, so 30 years later, judgment was pronounced on the most prestigious Jewish citizens in Jerusalem, and 3,600 of them were killed by the then reigning Roman governor. It wasn't Pilate. He was also deposed of his position. Um, but many of these people, these 3,600 Jerusalem elites, were mercilessly scourged and also crucified. Beware of what you say. And then, of course, we all know that in 70 AD, Jerusalem fell. Her citizens were crucified around her walls until, as Josephus says, you know, he's the famous first century Jewish historian, he tells us that there was no more space for crosses to be planted in the ground around the city of Jerusalem. That's a lot of crosses. There wasn't any more space for crosses. So many people were crucified. And th those were the people that tried to escape from the walls. You know, the inside the walls, they were starving to death. Literally, men, women, children, starving to death. And they threw 100,000 bodies over the walls that had died, you know, of starvation. They just threw their corpses over the wall so that... Literally, we are told by Josephus that the circumference of the city on the outside was literally covered with dead bodies, either hanging on crosses or, you know, piled up on the ground. They had said, we have no king but, but Caesar. They said, his blood be on us and our children. And you know what God said? Okay, that's what you asked for, that's what you'll get. And as we know, the Jewish people have suffered under the oppression of one type of Gentile Caesar after another. Ever since, they're still being oppressed by the Gentile Caesars all around them who are threatening to annihilate them. And we know in the last days, the tribulation, they will, it will all culminate with their oppression under the worst Caesar of all. The Antichrist. They have to go through all of that before finally their true Messiah returns and they are at long last saved because they finally recognize him and acknowledge him. So as we begin this lesson and our final volume of the life of Christ, we find that Jesus has been unjustly condemned and sentenced to death and he is delivered over to the Roman soldiers in order to be crucified. But prior to his actual crucifixion, he must make his way from Gabbatha. By the way, I have a map I want you to make for me for next week. I just thought of it. A map of, I have it in my Bible, so remind me. Uh, I'm going to give you next week, Lord willing, a map that will show you how far it was from Gabbatha. Remember Gabbatha? That was the name of the raised pavement in the Praetorium. It was on that pavement that Pilate sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. And then, remember, he had a bowl brought out and he washed his hands and said, you know, I, I am, what did he say exactly? I remove myself from, you know, being responsible for the blood of this righteous man or whatever it was he said. But that was all, that took place at Gabbatha. So uh, Jesus was walked from Gabbatha at, in the Praetorium, the judgment hall of, of Pilate, and he walked over to Golgotha. Okay, that's another name for Calvary. Golgotha or, or Calvary, one and the same. 
Actually, when you're going to see this map, it's not that far. It's about one-fourth of a mile from Gabbatha to Golgotha. And that walk, as we know, is called the Way of the Cross, or Via Crucia in uh, Latin, or Via Della Rosa, which is also Latin, which means the Way of Sorrow, the Way of Sorrow. Now, technically, we could say that his path to the cross began much earlier than this walk from Gabbatha to Golgotha. It began even earlier than the time of his first announcement to his disciples. Remember, maybe about the second year of his ministry with his disciples, he had told them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall turn him over to the uh, Gentiles. And he went into very specifics. He said, and the Gentiles will mock him, and they will scourge him, and they will spit on him, and they will kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. Well, he had repeatedly after that predicted his own um, death, suffering, and, and resurrection to his men. He had predicted all that. But really, we could say the way of the cross began even before he started announcing it to his men. When did it really begin? In the beginning. You got it. Way back in eternity past. Uh, we are told that the, the Son of God was the sacrificial lamb slain when? Slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that it was so settled in the mind of God, the triune Godhead, when they made this plan... It was so settled that it was like it was already done. You know, when God makes a promise, it's so good, it's as if it's already been to pass. That's how settled it is. You see, it was not evil and corrupt men who orchestrated the death of the Lord in a, on a, a first century Roman cross at a place called Calvary. Now, of course, those men are held accountable for their part in that, you know, and for their, their sin in committing judicial murder. But it wasn't men who orchestrated this whole thing. It was sovereign God who had predetermined the time and the place, you know, even down to the minute when Jesus would give up the ghost and the manner and the circumstances, everything. He predetermined all about his son's death. It was the way he had determined to pay for mankind's sin. It was God's heavenly designed blueprint for redemption from the beginning of the ages. And if you don't like his way, guess what? That's just really too bad because his mind, his ways, his thoughts are so much higher than ours. People will say, well, I don't like the way of a bloody cross. I don't like the fact that there's just one way and that's through Jesus Christ. That's the way God devised. That's the way he revealed to us. That is the way. That is the only way. All other roads lead to destruction. God took what man, in his fullest exposure of his sinful depravity, meant for evil. And what did he do? He turned it into the most glorious good that this world has ever known. You know what that good is? You know what the good news is? That you and I can have freedom from the power of sin and death. Isn't that good news? It doesn't get any better than that. All we have to do is, is give him our sins and he gives us his righteousness. What a deal. <laughs> God also foretold of that plan. You know, he didn't keep it a secret so that men, you know, had to scratch their heads and come up with all their own plans and, and ways to get to him. 
God revealed his plan of salvation. He didn't leave his special creation in the dark uh, after his fall into sin. He didn't leave man groping around, gathering fig leaves to futilely try to cover up his naked sinfulness. You know, man had disobeyed God, and if you and I had been in the garden, sooner or later we would have done the same thing. We would have disobeyed God. He had decided to do things his way rather than trust the goodness of God and obey his way, which is still what men are doing. They devise their own ways, right, instead of obeying God's way. But God, right away, made it evident that he was going to send a Savior. Genesis 3.15, right away. The fall happens in Genesis 3. And then in verse 15, God makes the first promise of the Savior to come, mankind's Redeemer. And what is he called? The seed, singular, of the woman. Now, we all know that women don't have seed, do they? Women don't have sperm. So what did this mean? What was he revealing to man? He was revealing that the Savior, the Redeemer, would be born without a human father. So he would not inherit the Adamic sin nature. And what would he do? God said he would utterly crush the head of the evil one who had brought sin and death into this world. And then from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the divinely inspired pages of the entire Old Testament scripture continuously predict to us the coming of this promised seed of the woman, the Savior. We're told everything about him, you know, what his lineage would be, what to look for, etc., etc., etc. He is the subject and he is the purpose of literally everything in the Old Testament scripture. And his redemption story smoothly flows right through into the four Gospels concerning the Lord Jesus himself. And of course, the Lord Jesus repeatedly states who he is, and he shows people how he fulfills over and over again all the prophecies that were predicted about the coming Messiah. He claims who he is. He predicts his own death, his own resurrection, every little detail about it, doesn't he? Well, let's look now. You didn't think I'd ever get to the verses, did you? I didn't either. <laughs> let's look at the verses that tell us about the Lord's way of the cross, and um, we're going to not have enough time to, to finish this. There are two events, two recorded events, that happen on the way to the cross. One has to do with a man named Simon, who's from Cyrene. The other has to do with some women called Daughters of Jerusalem. We're not going to have time to discuss them. We'll talk about them, Lord willing, next week, okay? But for now, we're going to talk about Simon the Cyrene. And I'm going to read real quickly. If you can't keep up with me, just listen. But i got to go through this quick. I'm going to read from all four Gospels because that's how we find out everything we need to know, know about this man, Simon. So I'm going to start with Matthew 27 and just look at verses 31 and 32. Matthew 27, I already had you there, so you should be there. 31, and after that they had mocked him. Who are they talking about there? Jesus. If you look in the verses before that, the soldiers had just spit on him. They, they beat him on the head with the reed and they mocked him. And now we're told that after they finished mocking him, they took the robe off from him. That would be the, the Roman cape. They took that off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 32, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. 
not Simon's cross, the Lord's cross. All right, now I'm going to flip over to uh, Mark 15. Mark 15, looking at verses 20 and 21. Mark 15, 20 and 21. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. It says essentially exactly the same thing that Matthew did. And then verse 21, And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So you see, Mark gives us a little bit more information. All right? And then Luke, Luke 23, 26, very brief. Luke doesn't say much. But he says one thing that's interesting that the others didn't tell us. Luke twenty three twenty six, it says, And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. Okay? After Jesus. One more place, and this is John 19, Verses 16 and 17, or at least part of verse 17. John 19, 16. Then delivered he, that's Pilate, him, Jesus, then delivered Pilate, Jesus, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, or Golgotha in Hebrew. All right. Now, I, don't, I don't care where you go back to, but um, we, we did learn from both Matthew and Mark that the Roman soldiers removed from Jesus that mocking Roman cape, okay, that scarlet robe, and they dressed him back into his original garments. All right, very likely they kept on his head that crown of thorns. It does not say they took that off, so we assume they kept that on his head. But they dressed him back in his original garments before they led him out to be crucified. Now, that might not seem to be a very important detail to us, but it is. Does the Holy Spirit ever waste our time with anything that is not important? No, he doesn't. Think for just one minute, what prophecy would not have been fulfilled? What Messianic Old Testament prophecy would not have been fulfilled if they had not at this time put Jesus back into his original garments, but that he remained with that scarlet robe on instead. Exactly. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, where it says, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. We're going to talk about how specific that is later on in another lesson. But that prophecy would not have been fulfilled if he had not been put back into his own garments. Because that prophecy goes on in Psalm 22 to say that they cast lots for his vesture after they had pierced his hands and feet. So it's not like they could have cast lots for his clothes while they were still in the praetorium. They did it at the site of the crucifixion. So we see again how men seem to be doing their thing, right? 
I mean, dressing and undressing the Lord like as if he was a paper doll. Do you know how many times they dressed and undressed him? If you include the soldiers and um, uh, the, um, the temple guard and Herod's men, they're constantly mocking him and taking off his clothes, putting his clothes on, taking off his clothes to scourge him, putting his clothes back. Just, I think it's like three or four times that they dress and undress him. Terrible. And can you imagine, in addition to the... the pain that he's going through to have clothes taken on and off after your whole back has been just sliced open with that scourging whip and raw and bones sticking out and then they keep putting clothes on you and taking them off just added to the torture and the agony but again we see men thinking that they're doing their thing and yet God is in absolute control of all of this because he's making sure that everything that takes place is going to prove who his son is and this was one more prophecy that needed to be fulfilled, so he needed to have his own clothes on him. Amazing. Also notice that this, this has been the case ever since the Garden um, of Gethsemane, where the Lord was arrested. But every time the Holy Spirit tells us about Jesus being taken from one place to another, he always uses the verb led. For example, when he's referring um, to them leading him to Annas, both Mark and John use the word led when he's talking about leading him away to Caiaphas. In John and Matthew and Luke, they all said they led him away to Caiaphas. Matthew says they led him away to Pontius Pilate, and now they led him away to crucify him. You can check it out yourself every time it's the word led. Why does the scripture never once, why did the Holy Spirit never once inspire any of the four gospel writers to say that they drove him to the next location or they dragged him? Why is it always that they led him? Right, it's because the divine author of the gospels wants us to know that Jesus was neither driven nor dragged from from Gethsemane to Annas' palace or from Annas' palace to the Sanhedrin council chamber where Caiaphas uh, officiated or from the council chamber over to the praetorium or from the praetorium to Calvary. He didn't have to be dragged because he went of his own free volition. He was a, like a lamb, silent, led to the slaughter. That's an important word too there, that one little word, led. John 19, 16 describes in the very briefest way possible the procession to the place of crucifixion. Now, uh, Alfred Edersheim, uh, I have his book, it's a great book on the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. Alfred Edersheim was a Jewish Christian, so he has a great perspective on everything about the customs of that time, but he tells us that it was the custom of the Romans that those who were executed to be crucified were to be taken through the most crowded streets of the city and in the longest, most meandering way possible. Now, do you understand that? So, for example, if this was a customary crucifixion, they would lead Jesus from Gabbatha, the pavement, the judgment hall of, of uh, Pilate, just a quarter of a mile over to Golgotha, but they would take him all through the city in a very meandering, circuitous way, okay? There were three reasons to do that before they finally got him to the site of the execution. They had three reasons to, for doing that. One was to make the gruesome spectacle 
a uh, maximum deterrent to breaking Roman law. As you can imagine, all the people watching would say, ooh, I don't want to ever break Roman law because I don't want that to ever happen to me. Another reason was to draw public attention to what was taking place um, and to also bring even greater humility and torture to the victim. Edersheim says this, he says, quote, ordinarily the procession was headed by the centurion in charge. All right, so it was headed by him, but he was preceded by one who proclaimed the nature of the crime of the victim and carried a white wooden board on which the crime was written, or it was put around the victim's neck. So what he's telling us so far, now imagine this in your mind, here's the procession. This is a common procession, or cavalcade, cavalcade is what you could call it. Um, the centurion is in the front, the one who's in charge of the crucifixion, but actually not in front, because right in front of him is a herald who is pronouncing, he has a white board with the crime of the victim uh, written on the board, like murder or whatever it is, the guy's name and then murder. Well, I don't even know if they put the name for sure, but whatever his crime was. Or if he didn't carry a white board, they would hang it around the victim's neck. Now, we don't know if in the Lord's case the board was around his neck or if, if the guy up front was holding it. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we do know there was a board, don't we? Because they nailed it to the cross above his, above his head. So you have the herald announcing the crimes, and then you have the, um, the Roman centurion behind him. And then, behind them, four soldiers, four Roman soldiers were assigned to each victim. And they would walk, the victim would walk in the middle, and there would be two Roman soldiers on the right of him and two Roman soldiers on the left of him. I did that the opposite. <laughs> but there would be four all together. Now, in this particular procession, how many victims were there? Three. The Lord and the two thieves. So how many Roman soldiers? Twelve. So how many are in the entire procession? Seventeen. Seventeen. Just trust me, it's seventeen. There's 17, okay? If there was a herald, which there usually was, the one up front, then the Roman centurion, and then you're 12 and 3, 15. So 15, 16, 17. 17 in this procession. And um, uh, uh, what Edersheim goes on to say that in this particular procession, it may very well be that they did not take the most meandering way through the city. Because what day was it? Passover. All of the city streets were already very crowded. And that might have taken too long. And they probably wanted to get right over to Calvary as quick as they could because they feared. And, you know, if too many people who were followers of Jesus found out what they were doing, there could be a mob or a revolt. They didn't know how afraid his followers were. So I doubt that they took him all the way through the city before they got over to uh, Golgotha. So he probably just had a one-quarter mile walk. But in his condition, that would still be very long. Also, we are told that the crucifixion victims were required by Roman law to carry their own cross to the place of execution. Even after his intense scourging, which was worse than any man had ever had, 
The Lord was to be no exception here. As he was led away from the praetorium, he bore the weight of his own cross. Now, we really would not know this if it wasn't for John's account. Do you realize that when we read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke? You would not know that the Lord, at least for part of the trip, carried his own cross. Because if you just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it sounds like they compelled Simon right away to carry the cross for him. Only John tells us that initially Jesus bore his own cross. In fact, it's interesting to find if you read John 19, verses 16 and 17, he never even mentions Simon at all. So if you only read John, what would you think? That he did it the whole way. So you have to put all four Gospels together, don't you? To get the complete picture. Now, a number of Bible expositors suggest that the crucifixion victims only carried either the cross beam, which was called a patibulum in, in Latin. They either only carried that or they carried the, um, the vertical upright post, but not the entire cross. That would weigh something like 200 pounds. And after scourging, very few men would be able to carry a full cross but they agree that most um, carried the patibulum, you know, the cross beam. And that, even carrying that would be pretty bad for a man who had been scourged because it weighed about 80 to 100 pounds. And remember, it was put on the shoulders of a man who had had his shoulders ripped to pieces. All right? And they would put the, the cross on the shoulders and put chains around it. Can you just imagine what that feels like on raw, bloody shoulders? And so Jesus, just think of all that Jesus has been through before they put that cross on his shoulders. He has, you know, probably not had any sleep since Tuesday night. This is now Thursday, right? Because we believe in a Thursday crucifixion. If you missed that, you'll have to get our lesson on that. Um, but he had probably hasn't gotten any sleep since Tuesday night in Bethany. And I don't even know if he got sleep that night because he might have just stayed up all night praying. But then he went through a terrible ba battle with Satan when he was in the upper room. It was battling Satan until finally Judas left. Then he preached a full and very intense discourse, his last sermon, the farewell discourse. They walked to the Mount of Olives where he then agonized in prayer in Gethsemane until he literally sweat drops of blood. And then he was betrayed by his own familiar friend and he was arrested and led away in chains while all of his other men scattered from him. And then remember Peter denied him three times that night. And he was led around, the Lord was led around from one place to another all night long, encountering every travesty of justice imaginable as he stood before unjust religious and civil rulers. He was not only subjected to their hypocrisy and to their physical abuse, but to false witnesses and their, their mockery and their spit. He was dressed and undressed at least three or four times. He was so physically mistreated. Remember, we learned from Isaiah that he no longer even resembled a human being. And he was so grotesque to look on that we were told in Isaiah 53.3 that people hid their faces from him. He was just too gross to look at. 
even if he did only carry an 80 or 100 pound crossbeam, it was an extremely cruel task to put upon him, particularly when you consider this fact. Those who put it on him had declared him innocent over and over again. Amazing, isn't it? But far worse than his physical pain was what? His spiritual pain. Because he was Lord, he knew that he was literally about to become the personification of everything that he abhorred and detested. You know, every abominable thing that has ever taken place in this earth since the beginning of time, every man, woman, boy and girl, every sin that has ever been committed, he was going to take the weight of all of that upon himself and because he was going to become sin and become the curse for us, what did his father have to do for the first time ever? Turn his back from him and he knew that. He knew he was going to be separated from his father. And so I would say that even worse than his physical pain was his spiritual pain. So it is, is it any wonder then that the Lord was weary as he slowly stumbled on his way to Calvary? Under the weight of the crossbeam, on his bruised, beaten, bloody body. You know, he was God, but he was also man. You know, he was in a human body, and a human body has its limitations. And unlike his times of suffering when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and unlike his time of suffering when he agonized in Gethsemane, God did not send any holy angels to minister to him this time, did he? He's going to have to drink this cup himself to the full. And so he must have been progressing too slowly for their liking or else maybe he fell and they just couldn't get him up. Maybe they tried whipping him or whatever and he just couldn't get up. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that they could not revive his exhausted strength. And so what did the Roman soldiers do? They seized upon a man who was conveniently passing by in order to get him to carry that, the Lord's cross. Now, they were likely, as I said, in a hurry to proceed with this crucifixion um, because I'm sure they had been warned of a potential uprising. And so we learn from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the man they compelled to carry the Lord's cross was a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene was a Greek settlement located in North Africa, in what today is known as Libya. It was a, a prosperous trade center, and it was populated by many Jewish people. Now, Simon, was he a Gentile or a Jew? He was Jewish. Now, see, a lot of stories get it wrong. They'll say he was a Gentile, but he was Jewish. Simon was very, very much a Jewish name. Simon was coming out of the country, we are told in Luke, meaning that he was just arriving in the city from one of the rural areas surrounding the city. No doubt he was coming, like the millions of other Passover pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, to celebrate what? The Passover. He was not part of the crowd that was following the crucifixion uh, procession. He was just passing, he was just coming into the city. He likely knew little to nothing about what was happening when suddenly 
and providentially he was nabbed and uh, drafted into carrying Jesus's cross. He didn't come upon the scene. Now, I know you'll see this in movies and maybe even in books, but Simon the Cyrene did not come upon the scene as a compassionate man and see the Lord stumbling or falling on the ground and volunteer to pick up his cross and carry it. Have you seen movies that portray him that way? That's not accurate. He he was compelled. He was forced into carrying that crossbeam. But what really is sad to me is that there was nobody that did volunteer. Isn't that amazing? Where was Peter? Where were John? I don't know. Maybe at a distance. Some of the other disciples, I'm sure, were watching somewhere. We're going to see next week there were some daughters of Jerusalem who were weeping their heads off for Jesus. We know there had to be somebody there who would have some compassion, but nobody volunteered to carry his cross. So the Romans had to grab this guy and compel him to do it. And we are told exactly where it happened, by the way. Matthew 27, 32 tells us it was as they came out. You know what that means? It means that the procession had just left the walls of the city. So we know exactly how far Jesus walked from the praetorium. He walked right to the, the gate and had just come out of the gate, which would be the Damascus gate. And Simon was coming, it was just about to come into the city, and that's where they grabbed him. You know, the soldiers back then, the Romans, were given the legal right to compel somebody to carry their backpack. Remember when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount? And he told his listeners, he said, well, you know, if you're compelled to carry a, a, a burden or a pack for one mile, I tell you, carry it two miles. Why? So that you'll be a testimony of the grace and love and mercy of, of, of me, of the Lord. So they have this right, and they compel. This tells us that it was against Simon's will. There was really no way out for him. In fact, Luke said they laid hold of him. They made him do this. And if you could imagine Simon's thinking at this time, what would he, he would have not been very happy about this, would he? I'm sure he was probably angry about this. He was probably thinking to himself, my goodness, I've just come all the way from North Africa to come here to commemorate the time when the blood of the Passover lambs freed my ancestors from their bondage to the Egyptians, and now I'm being put in bondage as a slave to these Romans. All I did was walk all this distance so I could worship God, and here they're making me serve some bloody, gory-looking criminal on his way to being crucified. I'm sure he was not happy about it. He was angry. Do you think that he realized the honor of the unique privilege that he was being given on that special day? Not at that time, he sure didn't. He absolutely didn't. We can pretty much guess he was angry. He would think it a terrible injustice to be forced to carry the disgraceful burden of a Roman cross. After all, it wasn't his responsibility. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't committed any sins. Ha! Huh. Little would Simon have ever realized that he was infinitely more guilty and more responsible to carry that cross than the one he was actually bearing it for. The one who was bearing it was not guilty of any sin. Simon, I'm sure, was guilty of many sins, as we all are. Is there, do you think, 
an angel in heaven who would have not gladly traded place with Simon? Any one of the angels, the holy angels, would have volunteered for that job. Would any of you have volunteered for that job if we had been there now with hindsight? I'm sure two of us could have easily done that. We could, we could have carried the cross for him. I would have volunteered. I probably wouldn't have, you know. But now I would. And what a great honor. What a great privilege for Simon. He didn't realize it, did he, at the time. He didn't realize that God is the champion at taking burdens and turning them into blessings. And that's one thing I want you to leave with today. You may have a burden in your life, but it may turn out to be the greatest blessing that you have ever had. Do you know what happened in Simon's life? I can tell you, and we're pretty sure about this, because of the fact that Mark tells us the names of his two sons. Now why would God the Holy Spirit have Mark tell us the name of this guy's two sons if that wasn't important? Does he waste our time? No, we've already talked about that. So why are Alexander and Rufus mentioned by Mark? I'll tell you why. Because by the time Mark wrote his gospel, Alexander and Rufus were well-known Christians in the the early church. They knew who he was talking about. Oh, their father was Simon, the Cyrene who carried the Lord's cross. Now, how do you think Alexander and Rufus became Christians? obviously through the testimony of their father. Think of all the things that Simon got to see that very special day. He was walking after Jesus, Luke tells us. So now how many do we have in the procession? Eighteen. He's right behind Jesus. So what does he hear? He hears Jesus stop and talk to the daughters of Jerusalem and weep for them and share with them a prophecy. He hears him when he's laying down and having the nails driven into him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm sure by then he was very interested in this unique man as he heard the crowds hailing him as the king of Israel. He saved others. He can't save himself. He saved others? Hmm. I am sure he stuck around. And he watched as everything happened, heard all those sayings. He saw the sky get dark. He felt the earthquake. And I believe that he became a Christian. If not that day, surely on Sunday. And I believe he ran and and made himself an acquaintance with the apostles and eventually learned that Jesus had said one of these things as one of his teachings. If any man will come after me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, the first time that happened with Simon, he was compelled, forced to follow after Jesus and carry his cross. But the second time, he obeyed that by his own volition. He became a Christian. And I think absolutely, and most commentators agree, that that's why his sons are mentioned. And Rufus is greeted by the Apostle Paul, listen to this. In Romans 16, 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus and his mother and mine. Who would Rufus's mother have been? Simon's wife, who Paul thought so much of that he claimed her for his own mother. Greet Rufus 
and his mother and mine. So you see how a burden was turned into a blessing that day for Simon? Mm. We have a mighty God, don't we? Sorry I have kept you over, but we're, you know, nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Father, thank you for this time together. Bless each woman and uh, help her to be salt and light this week. Bring us all back safely next week. We pray in your name. Amen.